Good morning, church. That was terrible. Aloha, y'all. Aloha. Good to see you this morning. Isn't it a beautiful day? Thank the Lord for just a day like this right here, right now. So uh, we're going to be getting back into the book of Judges this morning. And uh, man, I'm excited about chapter 7, so much so that I've made way too many slides and I don't know if I'll get through it all today, but I hope so because it is a fantastic story and there's so much of the nature of God shown in this. Uh, How many of you know what the Ottoman Empire is? Does anybody know the name of any of the kings or the what took place or their battles? You know, we don't have the history of the Ottoman Empire that we do of Israel and what took place. This little nation of this tiny people group in this little spot in the world right over here. And yet we have more detailed records of what took place with Israel than with this mighty empire that built beautiful things and had all these uh, cultural uh, things that happened back and forth, all the trade the impact that they made on the world. What about Iceland and the Vikings? We know some, but actually very little. Most of it's stories we made up because God didn't record that. Now, why did God consider it important to record this piece of history and not the Ottoman Empire or the Vikings or Scotland at this period of time or any of the other, the Gaul or up there in, in Europe? None of that's recorded. Why? Because this is the story of God. This is not the story of Israel. This is the story of God, and God chose Israel. And some would say, well, why why did he do that? Is that fair that God decided to intervene on behalf of Israel and teach them and let the Ottomans go to hell, let that empire just, just burn? So was that fair? Paul asked that question, and he said, listen, why can the pot turn around and say to the potter, why have you made me thus? He said, he's God. God can choose to do what he wants to do. God made us, and he has the right to pick one nation, one government, one group of people, and say, you are my people, and not pick the other group. That's God's right, and that's what he did. So we're going to read a story this morning about a group of people that was so long ago, there's not much history anywhere else except the Bible. There's a few carved tablets here and there, but this is we don't have a lot of history from back in this time. But the reason that we have this is because it tells us about God, because this is God's story. So let's see what we can learn about God this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. Lord, I pray you'd help me to get out of the way and just for us to see your scripture, your word, and to learn more about you. Lord, we need you. We are desperate and we are needy and and we, without you, we are destitute, Father. So teach us more about you, about your nature, about your love and your loving kindness, Lord, and change us to be closer into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so here we are, Judges part 8. We're going to go uh, story of Gideon. This is the fourth lesson for about Gideon. And today we're going to look at some odd odds. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon? And all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So Gideon, remember last last week we talked about he he had put this fleece before God and finally he said, okay, God, I'll do it. So he took his shofar, his trumpet, and he blew that trumpet, and all of the host of Israel 
came to where Gideon was. So you had Zerubbabel and you had uh, Ephraim coming. You had all of these different guys. They're coming up to where uh, uh, um, Gideon is there in, on the mountain. And at the same time, you've got the children of the east coming into the valley. So I don't know how long has passed between last week and this week as far as the story goes. But the children of Israel are now gathered ready to fight. 32,000 of them. Judges 8.10, we find out how many of the, uh, of, the ho- e- of the children of the east were up there. And uh, let's see, about halfway through the verse, about 15,000 men, all that were left of the host of the children of the east, for there fell 120,000 that drew sword. So if we take that 15,000 plus the 120,000 that were already dead, we find out that Israel is facing about 135,000 men with their, with their uh, small group. Here's the, the well of Herod, the spring where they would be getting water. It would be right up there where the children of Israel were. And then across the valley, you see where uh, the host of the children of the east are gathered over on that side. Now, if you, if you look at it like this, you see the big terrain movement. So there is Israel's army. There is the children of the east or the Midianites. And in between, so you have these two large peaks. And in between is this large flat valley. It's the biggest, most fertile, nicest valley aside from the one where we read about the chariot battle that was before. But this is, this is a big, nice place to have a large army fight. It is not a great place for guerrilla warfare. This would be from over by the, uh, the uh, spring of Herod or the well of Herod where Gideon's army is, and that's looking across the valley back over to where the Midianites were going to be. That, that hill back over there uh, is about five miles away. So you see the, the stuff up close. Don't be tricked. That's trees and radio antennas on top of that ridge. So if you can imagine being there with Gideon, right? You're up on the little ridge. You're looking across the valley and out across the way. You see 135,000 guys, camels, tents, people moving back and forth, food coming in and out. That's what Gideon's got to go fight across that valley. Now, do you want to charge across this valley toward an army that's that size? I don't think Gideon wanted to either. Here's what the odds look like. Four to one at this point. So Israel has about 32,000 men, and they have 135,000 men. Now, if you've seen some Marvel movies and, and some you know uh, people winning with fantastic odds, that's movies. That doesn't work that way. Okay, When you're running across a field with a stick or a pointy, sharp sword, and you've got to kill four to one, it, it would bite. Okay, It would be a very bad place to be. Judges 7, 2, and the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. So the trumpet had been blown, the word had gone out, come for battle. So the people came for battle, they show up, they see this army. They're looking around. It's four to one. These are terrible odds. 
And remember, they've been walking in sin for a while, and it's been a generation since there's been a miracle, and they're going, this is stupid. And then here comes the commander. If you think this is stupid, feel free to go home. Cool. <laughs> I'm going home. Two-thirds of them go, you know what? We're going home. That's a terrible idea. Here's what the odds look like now. 13.5 to 1. That's 13 and a half men to one. Now, if you know, you're the three musketeers. You look at that and go, nah, no problem. All for one, one for all. We're going to do it. But that's not reality. Here's what it looks like. How about playing basketball? Five on your team, 67 on the other team. How do you think that game's going to go? You're going to put some money down? You go, no, no, we're going to pray first. Yeah, but there's 67 of them, right? That's terrible odds. How about volleyball? You get six guys on one guy and 81 people on the other side of the court. Everybody's standing shoulder to shoulder. See if you can spike the ball when that happens. Baseball, 121 men in the outfield, right? Try to, try to get a home run with that. You realize now what this might look like. How about 148 linebackers coming at your team? You know, you get out there in football. You think, that any, you think Tom Brady's going to win this game? It's not going to happen, guys. It doesn't matter how good of a soldier you are. It doesn't matter how powerful and mighty and awesome you are. When you charge across a field five miles to get to an army that's got that many more people than you, you're going to die. It's just, it's just the way it is. You're just going to die. There's no big equal, equalizer here. There's no Abram tanks or helicopters that are coming in. You, you just got a pointy stick and you got to poke the other guy 14 times before they poke you. And it's just, it's not going to work. Judges chapter 7, verse 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go with thee. So Gideon's looking around, and he's like, Really? 13.5 to 1, that's, that's, too, that's too many? You think we're going to go beat these, Isra these, these Midianites with these few Israelites, and we're going to go, look what we've done. <laughs> you know, he goes, ah, okay, Lord. So they go down to the spring. They go down to get water. So he brought the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself, and likewise everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. So he said, the ones that, that lap as a dog, now he qualifies this as gra grabbing the water with your hand, bringing it up, and then drinking the water like that, are those that kneel down and go and drink. Now, I've grew up in the country and we drank out of creeks constantly over there and uh we, we had limestone and so you know when you're out in the woods or whatever bailing hay you just run to the closest clear water and start drinking and you never bring it up with your hand your hands are dirty and nasty and you can't get enough water that way that would take like 30 minutes to get enough water so you go down and you put your face in the water you build a little straw with your lips and you can drink a lot of cold water fast. So this is what most everybody's doing. But you have the oddball, the weirdo, that's not very thirsty. And he's drinking water like that. Now, there's been much ado about why God picked them because these were kneeling or they weren't or they were like a dog or this or that. The truth is, God's just getting rid of a bunch of people. It always amuses me when people find something in Scripture like uh, the Daniel diet. You've heard of the Daniel diet? 
And in the Daniel diet, you know, they ate lentils for, and they got healthier. And so people were like, we can eat lentils and we'll get healthier. Well, next time you lose like a hatchet or a knife in the river, carve a stick and throw it in and see if it swims back to you. You you know, that's one of the prophets in the Bible did that. They lost the hatchet head and the guy's like, oh no, it was borrowed. And he's like, oh, no worries. Here's a stick. Throw it in. The hatchet swims back. You pick it up. You go, well, that's how that works. No, it isn't. That's how God works. God does amazing things like letting people eat lentils and they get healthier. But that's not usually what happens. And, and when people drink out of the river like that, that's not bad, unless you're here and the water has pig feces in it. But, but if, you're, if you're drinking out of the water and you do it that way, that wasn't a bad thing. It was just God saying, I don't want all these guys. I only want 300 of them. And the number of them that lapped putting their hand to their mouth were 300 men, but all the rest of the people bowed down on their knees to drink water. Now, if you're getting water from the river, you're still kneeling down, but the, the big group of them put their face in the water, and the few of them uh, pulled the water up and drank it. And so he narrows it down to 300 men. Now, look at 7-7. Seven, seven. Now, this has got to be, you know, they say one is the loneliest number. I think Gideon thought 300 was the lone, loneliest number. Judges 7, 7, and the Lord said unto Gideon, by the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thy hand and let all the other people go every man unto his place by the 300. Here's what the odds look like now. 450 to 1. Can you imagine being Gideon and him saying, you got to do this with 300 guys? You're not, you, you need to do it. You can't have the big group. You got to do it with 300 guys. Now what? Now what are you, 450 to 1. How about basketball? 2,025 guys on one team, five on the other. You think you're going to win that game? You, talk about, you can't even walk through the court, much less dribble across the thing. And so he goes, how are we going to do it? But the problem, the problem that we have, friends, is that we read the passage wrong. See, this is how we read it. And the Lord said unto him, unto Gideon, by the 300 men that lapped water. Oh, no, we've got to do it with 300. Here's the way we should read it. And the Lord said unto Gideon, by the 300 men, will I save you? You see, that's the right one to look at. That's the right one to consider. God said, I'm going to save you. It doesn't matter how many men he's got. What matters is who's going to do the saving. Here's what the odds actually look like. 450 to God. That's what the odds look like. It's not 450 to 1, it's 450 to God, and it doesn't matter how many you put in the left-hand column. You see that little sliver? That's the 135,000 men. And the other side is what, it actually goes on into infancy, but I couldn't get that in my slide, so I just put a million. And, And so when God is for it, there's nothing we can do to win if God's going to if God's going to do it there's nothing we can do to add to the victory there's nothing that we can do and say okay we're going to fight really hard we're going to you know get plumy hats like the three musketeers and run across there you cannot do it you cannot physically take care of it but God will how about you read pilgrim's progress you remember pilgrim and he's there and he's got the sin on his back and he's journeying and he, all these people are coming and he's going i got to i've got to carry this and I need help. And he goes, God, help me carry this. And God says, no, I'm not interested in helping you carry that burden. But God, if I can't, if I can't carry this, I'll never make it to promised land. And God says, I don't want that mess in my promised land. You can't, you can't. But God, help me. I'm not going to help you. Until you're ready to let the mess go, it's your mess to clean up. But if you want to come to me, 
If you want to ask me, then I'll get rid of that. You see, I'm not going to strengthen you to accomplish that thing I want done. I'm going to do it. You're going to watch. You're going to be a spectator as I fight your battles. Not your battles, my battles. As I fight my battles, you're going to watch it done. If you want to come to Jesus and have Jesus help you carry your sin into glory, no, no, no dice. It's not going to happen. You keep them. They're yours. The Paul said, if you want to keep the law, if you want to carry that stuff and have some righteousness piled back there, and you want to carry that, he said, you're responsible to keep it all. Don't ever lie if you want to go to heaven. Not once. Not from here on. Never from birth. Absolute sinless righteousness. But if you want my righteousness, God says, come and ask me. Come and ask me. And I will take that mess that you call righteousness and that mess that you call sin, and I'll pay for it. And I'll take it to hell and death. And I will complete that victory. And then I will give you my righteousness. And you're not coming with your righteousness. You're coming with mine. And it doesn't matter what the odds are. You say, but, I, but you don't know what I've done. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what he did. It doesn't matter what the odds are. It matters what he did. But you know what it requires? Trust. Trust in God. It requires obedience in him. Not obedience to keep all the law, obedience to the gospel. Lord, save me. That's what it requires. That's what we got to do. It's nothing. We're spectators. We get to watch Jesus do it. And we, get to, and we get to cheer him on. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for saving me. It's called repentance. I quit trying, and I'm just going to let you do it, God. And that's... That's so beautiful. It's, it's why I love Jesus so much, because he did that for me. Matthew 8.24. We're talking about faith. Matthew 8.24. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves. But he was asleep, and his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, but the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know, they thought their problem was their circumstances. They thought that the storm and the waves and the wind and the stuff in their lives, they thought that's what was wrong. And they thought they needed to overcome. Lord, give us strength to paddle harder. No, you don't need strength to paddle harder. You need to wake me up. And say, Lord, save me. And it's done. It's finished. You get to watch. That's your job. Watch me work. Watch me finish. Watch me complete it. Watch me finish it in your life. You know, we come to God and we go, God, help us do this. No. Why, God, help us do this. No, God, do this. Okay. Okay. I will complete it and I'll get all the glory for it. You won't get any of it. It's all mine because all glory and honor belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. That's what this is about. It's about faith in God, not about faith in I can do this and empower myself. It's about faith going, you can do this because you're God, and I'm not. Romans 8.31, and what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his only son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Paul said, if that's your guy, and he's already given the most that he could give the blood of his son, and you come to him, how can he not give you everything? 
How can he not bless you with everything that you need? Now, we come and we say, God, we need, I don't know, we need ice cream at midnight. And he goes, no, you don't. That's not what you need. And so God will give us our needs, not, not what we want, because what God knows is more than what we know, and he loves us. But we come to God and we go, God, we need you in our lives, and he shows up. Friends, he shows up. We, God, we need you to help us with, with our coming to you because we in our weakness can't even come up with the right words. And he goes, that's right. Groan. Just come to me and go, Ugh. And he goes, I'll answer that groaning. I'll take care of it. Man, we serve a good God. Man, why don't we come to him all the time? Why don't we just wake up and, God, what's today? And then go to work. God, what are we going to do at work? God, what do you want me to do next? God, I just want to just be in submission to you because I want to be your spectator and see what you're going to do today. Do with me and do in my life. Amen. God is so good. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, as we walk through these things in life, I was reminded as I was studying Gideon that Gideon's a bit of a wimp when it comes to faith, right? He's, he's, a, he's a bit of a wimp. Put the fleece down, it's wet, the ground's dry. Let's try it again. Put the fleece down, the fleece is dry, the ground's wet. Let's do it again. Go into the camp and listen to the prophecy. Gideon is just a bit of, and you go, well, why is God working with him? Why is God, because God is growing Gideon up into doing something. And God will grow us up by the trials and the tribulations that are in our life. And God used things in Gideon. First, he came and talked to him and said, believe me, trust me. And Gideon did. Now Gideon, go cut the grove down. And Gideon did. And so God is growing Gideon up. And the scripture tells us that, that God is faithful, that the struggles and the trials and the difficulties in your life, God will use them to grow you up. So when you come to God and you say, God, take it all away, and he doesn't, you know why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. When you come and you say, God, I can't take any more, and he goes, but I know you better than you know you. And yes, you can. And here's a little bit more and a little bit more. And he says that he will not do it in a way that you can't escape. He'll do it in a way that will grow you up. And he says, flee from idolatry. Do you know what idolatry is? Putting something before God. Putting a thing and saying, this thing is more important than God. He says, flee from that and understand that God is faithful when you come to temptation. Mark 14.70, we see this this progression in peter's life and peter says this is peter when he's denying christ and he denied it again and a little after they that stood by said again to peter surely thou art one of them for thou art a galilean and thy speech agreeeth there thereto but he began to curse and swear saying i know not this man of whom you speak and the second time the cock crew so here's Peter, and, and, he's, and these people are coming. They go, you, you know Jesus. You're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Why? Because Peter didn't want to die. Because the world out there was coming to get him, and he goes, no, no, I'm not that guy. I don't know. Let me prove it. I'm not that guy. Because the most important thing, the biggest problem in Peter's life was he didn't want to die. But see, God grew Peter up. 
Peter denied Christ. That was terrible. You know what God did? He used that to grow Peter up. He used the wrong and the bad and the, and the difficulty in Peter's life to grow Peter up. If you think, man, I can't do ministry because of my past. I can't go and witness to that person or do that thing or act that way because of my past. Listen, God wants to use your past and use the trials and the tribulations, the failed problems in your life. God wants to use them to minister to you and those around you. God didn't want you to do them. He wants something better for you. But you know what? If God is, is the one that, that wrote this, he's the one that takes the broken pieces and makes something beautiful. Guys, trust him. You say, but, 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 no but. It doesn't matter what the odds are. It matters who is on your side. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Look at what happened to Peter. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered. They're talking to the Pharisees that would kill him. We ought obey God rather than man. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. They came in and said, Peter, don't do that anymore. And Peter said, not only are we going to do it, we're doing it today because we're going to obey God, not man. And the same people he was worried would kill him are taking counsel to kill him. And guess what? He was okay. They didn't get him because it wasn't in God's plan right then. God was using Peter for something else. You know, trusting God is something you grow into. You trust him a little bit right now. You trust him with tomorrow. You say, but I don't have the faith to just you know, go over to Africa and trust that God will protect me. Look, that might not even be what he's calling you to do, but is he calling you to open tomorrow morning in prayer? That's faith. That's saying, I need to talk to you this morning. That's faith. Start with that. And then you come and you have a tribulation and a trial, and you go, I can't handle this, but wait, I remember, yes, I can, God. That's faith. That's him growing you. That's him adding into your life. Friends, trust him in the little things and let him add to you. What does it say in James 1, 2? We all know the passage. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing that this is the trying of your faith, that knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He says, listen, the troubles that you have, the difficulties, when that happens in your life, go, hallelujah, this is great. What an awesome opportunity because what matters is not this difficulty. It's not that 135,000 men across. That's not what matters. What matters is God's getting ready to do something awesome. And what I need to do is be obedient to him and to trust him and to walk with him. And then God is going to deliver and do something and grow up. He says, this problem that you've got right now that you're facing, count it joy. Now, how many of you looked back at 2020 and said, thank you, God. What a great experience that we got to have by this, the, the walls closing in and us being stuck inside and what you brought us through it. And yet some of your hands going up. Amen. That's right. It's time to grow. It's time to grow. It's time to look at Washington and go, thank you, God, for what you're doing in our country because you are in charge, N not, not the goobers driving into the icebergs. You are in charge, and if you have got icebergs in our future, we're making iced tea. Let's go. Let's go. God, you are good, and I know you're good, and I trust you for what you're doing. And you walk with him, and you believe him, just like Gideon did. So, Judges 7, verse 8 
So the people took victuals, that's food, in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, into his tent and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. At this point, you've got to be looking at your commander, going, uh, this guy's our general. First of all, he's a kid. Like two months ago, he was thrashing wheat, right? He was the least in his father's house. And so now he's the commander, and, and there's this kid going, uh, okay, most of you go home. I'm just going to keep the 300, and we're going to go fight. And they're going, what? What's wrong with this guy? And so then the 300 guys are there, and they're, you know, standing on the ridge, and I'm sure total faith. And, and they're going, okay, what are we going to do? And Gideon's there, what are we going to do, God? What, what's going to take place? So God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another chance, Gideon. I, uh, Judges 7, verse 9, And it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it unto thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Purah, thy servant, down to the host. So he says, Listen, Gideon, you got this. Take off. Go fight. You'll win. Okay, okay, I get it. You're still scared. Okay, take your servant, and you two go down to the camp of the Midianites. And, and just hang out there for a little bit. Now, the way that a, an army camp would be set up in these days, right? You don't have telephones. You don't have, you don't have the ability to, to call back and have the commanders tell you what to do. So in the center are the kings, right? So we have three groups here, the children of the east, the Amalekites, and the Midianites. So they've probably got the important guys set up center of camp. Princes are around that. They've got a big open area. Then you've got... The, the lieutenants, the majors, the generals, right, around this. And then as we back out, we've got the, the first sergeants, right, and then the sergeants. And then we've got the, little, the, the, the commanders, the, the uh, group commanders. And then on the outside, you have the camels. You have the guys that are, are uh, the ones that are feeding the, the, uh, the sheep and the goats that we're going to eat tomorrow. They're the ones that are cleaning up the livestock, bringing water, they are putting up tents for the commander, and they're probably foot soldiers. So we have 135,000 fighting men. The, the army might be 180,000, or I, I don't know, of, of guys that are cooking, are, are moving stuff, are the kids that you brought with you. If I were going to this battle, I'd take my boys with me. And I'm sure that a lot of that sort of thing is taking place. And so out around the outside of the camp in the band is the least important camp followers, uh, the people that are just along for the ride or they are the support staff. And then inside is the command guys make decisions. Those decisions goes to the important guys around and it's disseminated out to their individual armies, right? So here, here he says, go down. And so thou shalt hear what they say and afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down into the host then went he down with Pura, his servant, unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. So he is outside of the armed men, but he's at the edge of the host here, and he's listening to what they're saying in camp. So he's close enough into camp to listen. Now, the way this happens is it's nighttime, and there's men going everywhere. You can't possibly know everybody. Do you know everybody on the island? Right? So we have half the number of people on the island that's in this army. So... This is, this is a, you know, a lot of people. You can't possibly know everybody. Everybody's mingling and moving around. So when Gideon and his servant walk down there, and they're kind of walking around the edge of camp, nobody thinks anything of it. This is a big, mauling, moving group of, of men and soldiers. 
So he sits there to listen. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east lay among the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the sea, seaside for the multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian. And there came unto a tent and it and smote it that it fell, and overturned it that the tent lay along. So he said, I had this dream that this loaf of cheap bread, not good bread, not like wheat bread, this is the stuff that you feed the servants and the goats if you don't, you know, have too much of it. It's barley bread. It's rough. It's hard to chew. It tastes nasty. And he says, I dreamed that this barley bread, the rough stuff, rolled down and hit the tent, and the whole tent fell over. Now, the Midianites are the kind of the leaders of this group. They probably have the biggest, nicest tents. So this was a weird dream. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for unto his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. So the man speaking doesn't consider himself a Midianite. But he says that, that you dream this, and God is going to deliver Midian to Gideon, the son of Joash. Now, apparently, this has been enough time that the army knows that Gideon is the one that's in charge, who he is, and that he is Jerubbabel, the one that fights against Baal. So they already know who they're fighting against and what is, so the sides are drawn, and this dream takes place. It's interesting to me that when Gideon heard the word from God, I'll deliver them into your hand, meh. I don't know. But when the enemy heard from God, he goes, okay, now I trust. Right? Is that a little weird? Is it a little weird? You know, it always strikes me as odd that there's prophecy in the Bible, right, about the end times and what's going to take place. And then somebody gets excited. Did you see that, that Russia and Egypt and, and these people are talking to each other? Like, yeah, it's prophesied, right? I mean, God said it. So it's good. Yeah, but now it's on Fox News. <laughs> so... God said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't know if it's now or later, but it's coming, right? God said it. It's a little odd that we get more excited about uh, uh, an alternate source of news than the omnipotent, omniscient God. Just as a buy. Okay, so he uh, goes back up, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and returned unto the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered unto your hand the host of Midian. Now, this worship is him believing God. So when he heard that, he turned around, he trusted God, he went back and said, We got this. You 300 men, we've got this. Now, the three-pronged attack. And he divided 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. So they take this clay uh, thing you would pour water out of, right? This little clay pitcher. And they put a lamp in this thing. And they take a trumpet and a pitcher. Now, if you ever have an army to fight, don't try this unless God tells you to. This is a terrible battle strategy. This is a ridiculous way to fight people. But God says this is going to work. So Gideon believes him appropriately. God's going to do this. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with a trumpet and 
and I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Okay, so here's the plan. There's a hundred, there is 135,000 men, camels without number. I calculated this because I'm a nerd. If I figure a 200-square-foot place per person, that would be a 10 by 20 to put your tent and your fire, and then add some space for roadways and camels, right? I come up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 acres of men if they're crammed in that tight. I estimate that Gideon soldiers are between 75 and 100 feet apart around the perimeter. That would be something like a four-mile perimeter around this thing that, that they're gathered around. So can you imagine... Here you are, here's a gigantic, twice the number of people on, on Kauai, right? They're all gathered in this field that you, can, you can't see the other side because of the tents and the noise and the racket. And there is your, your buddy, your soldier, 100 feet away, and he's got a pitcher and a fire and a trumpet. And you're about to announce we are attacking. This is a stupid battle plan, right? This is the worst idea in the history of warfare, except they're not attacking. They never will. They will stand there and watch God attack. See, they're not announcing that Gideon's doing it. What's the first announcement? The sword of the Lord is coming. His victory. This is fun. I, uh, Judges 7.19. So Gideon and the, and the hundred men that were with him came into the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they, had, uh, and they had but newly set the watch. And they blew trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. So the watches would be like this. Your first watch is, is uh, 6 to 10. Your second watch is 10 to 2. We're typically familiar with the Roman watches, which are 4, which is why we think of it as midnight to 3. But this is the middle watch, so this is the Hebrew watch, which is a 4-hour watch. So it's about 11 p.m., 10, 30, 11 o'clock that, that Gideon surrounds these guys and gets ready to fight. And the three companies blew the trumpets break, and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their hands and the trumpets in their right hands and blew withal, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So here they go. Crash. They break the trumpets. They hold up the lights. Now, this had a very natural reaction. Around the camp is all of the guys that are the least important soldiers. These are the guys that are the hangers-on and the ones that are, that are uh, with the camp, moving the camels, whatever. The foot soldiers are on the outside. So when the foot soldiers hear this crash, see the light, hear the trumpet, they look out and they go, the enemy's coming from the south. So they run north. Of course, on the north, they go, oh, the enemy's coming from the north. So they run south. Same from every direction. So suddenly, this sprawling camp becomes a very condensed camp. And people are running this way and running that way. And God's in there going, little, 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 with their minds. And so they start pulling swords out while they're running. And they go, ah, the soldiers. And so they start stabbing each other. 120,000 men. That is a mess. I mean, think about 120,000 men of feet right that's a lot of feet and so that's just the right foot can you imagine 120,000 bodies on the ground leaking and like running back and forth over them and stabbed to death and this is a gross nasty weird battle and it happens all night these guys are killing each other and stomping across each other and the whole army is decimated 
the leaders end up hightailing it south and with their tails between their legs, and it's an awesome victory for God. You know how this works? God plus everybody else. It doesn't matter what's on the other column. God! God did it! God killed them all. He didn't need Gideon. Look what they did. They blew their trumpets, and they cried, and they stood every man in his place around about the camp, and the host ran and cried and fled. So you know what Gideon's soldiers did? Not a thing, man. They just stood there. They blew the trumpet, and then they stood there while the army wiped itself out. Man, God is cool. Seven, Judges 7, 22, and the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout the host. And the host fled unto Bethshedah in Zareth, and unto Borah, uh, unto the border of Abel-Meloah, unto Tabitha. So he basically gives us the, the province and the city. So here they are, the orange line is the enemy leaving. They come down, they, they book it south. Remember that valley drops down? right there. So about 15,000 make it out. They run down the valley. This is early in the morning. Now, this happened at about 1030. So these guys just went to bed. They wake up to mayhem, people running through camp, stabbing other people. Their eyes are covered by God. They can't see who's the enemy, who's not. The biggest disaster that they've ever experienced. They're exhausted. They've been up planning to fight the Israelites soon. Now they're, they're running. They're bloody. They're cut. Their comrades are all dead. Their camels are gone. Their wealth is on the ground behind them. And you can imagine them fleeing and running. Well, when that happens, this is the first town they pass, the second town they pass as they're coming into the early morning hours. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. These are the other guys that weren't afraid to leave, the other 10,000. Remember the, the majority left? So these other guys that he had sent back to camp, they're in position now to chase the 15,000. Now, nobody's going to do this and go, yeah, we did that. I mean, God has the victory here. There is no question now that God has the victory. Judges 7, 24, And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and break before them the waters unto Bethra and Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethora uh, and Jordan. So uh, Gideon is chasing these guys. They've been up all night. The guys have lost their camels. They're running. They're trying to make it back to their home country and back across the Jordan River. And as they do, Gideon sends some fast runners ahead. Go to Ephraim. Tell those guys that are up right on the hill above the ford where you would cross the Jordan, tell them to get down there and block the, the river so they can't get across. So here comes Ephraim down, down the steep bank there, the red line, and hit the ford right there where the enemy would cross. This is the same place that they blocked when... Um, the uh, Moabites. Remember when the Moabites came and Eglon stabbed uh, the guy? This is the same place that they're blocking up the river. Uh, so uh, two words of wisdom, no land wars in Asia, and don't ever bring your army into Israel and let them block the ford because they all died when they did that. So here comes Ephraim. They come down and they block the ford right there and hold the army on the, uh, on the west side of the bank. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the uh, rock Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, 
And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. So Gideon had crossed the Jordan at this point, and the, uh, Ephraim had held the ford and chased and killed the two princes. I was, reading, <laughs> I was reading a commentary this week, I kid you not. The guy quoted a doctor as saying that they probably named the rock and the wine press after they killed the princes, and that the princes hadn't run there. And, uh, and died at the rock in the wine press named after them. And I thought, you had to quote a doctor to, to figure that out? I, I thought that was just hilarious that, that oh, of course they did. Okay, nobody else has my sense of humor. I thought it was funny. Um, so here, their mighty battle is complete. It's finished. God had total victory. We have another lesson with Gideon. He chases him across and back home and has some internal strife. And we see what Gideon did wrong at the end of this and how that came back to haunt him. Uh, we'll get, get to that. Gideon has a big section of the book of Judges. And the reason is we see as we're moving forward with Judges that God is teaching Israel through each generation, succeeding generation, and they are coming with bigger challenges, bigger things. And Gideon is the epitome of what takes place in Israel. He is the... Uh, the maybe the the the, abs, the 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 one that is all the others would be patterned after that faith that battle God's deliverance and what took place around it. So uh, we're gonna we get to cover Gideon probably two more lessons and I'm having a lot of fun with it. In case you couldn't tell, and I finished five minutes ahead of time. So, yep, pat on my back. Um, okay, today is the day that we get to take.